This is Truth with Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 21. Since the Garden of Eden, people have claimed that their good works, their religious affiliation, their personal kindness, or even their spotless rap sheet will be enough to save them. And if that failed, they just claimed they didn't need saving. But when Jesus confronts the religious leaders of the day, he makes it clear that there is only one way to be saved. Jesus declares once and for all what the entire Old Testament period was meant to prove. Salvation is not possible outside of the Messiah. Jesus is that Messiah, and he came to the earth to demonstrate his authority to save and his exclusive ability to grant access to the kingdom of heaven. Let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Matthew 21, verses 23 through 32. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and when he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. Now by recording this interaction between Jesus and some religious leaders, Matthew raises two issues concerning the divine standard for admission into the kingdom of heaven. Sadly, many people believe they have the freedom to determine that standard. But this is far from the truth, because according to what we just read, the first issue is the question of authority, verses 23 through 27. Matthew, the author, places this delegation of the Sanhedrin in the scene. Now, you remember that the Sanhedrin is the religious body of the time, the scribes, Pharisees, and chief priests and elders. So this is a delegation that was sent to Jesus by the Sanhedrin. They wanted to know who allowed this man to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey as a king. Who gave him permission to disrupt business here in the temple? You will remember when he turned over the tables in the court of the Gentiles. And, and who allowed this man to receive worship from children? What organization authorized this type of teaching that confronts our religious system? They are challenging the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus, on the other hand, does not need certification from anybody, from any religious council 
or any outside source of wisdom because in him all fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, according to Paul in Colossians 2 verse 9. And therefore he affirmed his authority by saying, you have heard what the ancients were told, or he would say in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, and then he would quote human wisdom or human teaching, and follow that up by saying, but I say... In other words, my authority is divine. You have heard human authority. You have heard teaching from men, from rabbis who quote from other theologians, who quote from other priests, who quote from other preachers and so forth. But I say, because I am divine, he says. And this little interaction reveals to us three areas of the human heart that we must observe when we are dealing with the question of authority to allow people into the kingdom of heaven. The first one I want us to look at is the problem of arrogance. Verse 23, the problem of arrogance. By this time in the life of Jesus, the Sanhedrin had plenty of evidence of the divine nature of Christ. It was not unclear to people that Jesus Christ was divine. He claimed to be divine. He spoke words of authority. His messianic credentials were very evident to every one of them because of the works that he did. So in other words, his works and words testified about him. For example, he healed the sick. He restored sight to the blind. He fed the multitudes miraculously. Jesus defeated Satan's temptation. He cast out demons, forgave sins, and preached kingdom realities. He commanded nature, promised to build his church, and prophesied his death, burial, and resurrection. The question is, what other credentials do you need to see? Their arrogance blinded them to the obvious. And it is so obvious. The nature of Christ is so obvious to all of us. It's not a matter of a lack of evidence. God has provided more than enough evidence of the nature and the character of Christ. For example, the created order testifies about the existence of God. According to Paul, we read in Romans 1 verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So in other words, we look at creation, you were looking at particular evidence of the existence of God. But what people do, they, they suppress that truth and they invent unprovable theories to say, well, this all came about by chance. It's the survival of the fittest. Well, you need to account for the arrival of the fittest. The virgin birth in Isaiah 7 verse 14. That was in the Old Testament, the book that was available to the scribes and Pharisees to verify the authority of Christ. The nativity in Bethlehem, Micah 5 verse 2. The flight from Egypt during the, the toddlerhood of Christ, that was in the book of Hosea. The beginning of his ministry in Galilee, Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 2. The content and methodology of his teaching in parables, using figures of speech. That was in Psalm 78, verses 1 through 2. All available for them to check out the credentials of Christ. The miraculous powers, Isaiah 34, verses 5 through 6. The inclusion of Gentiles in the kingdom of heaven, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 2. And the triumphal entry in Jerusalem from Zechariah 9, verse 9. See, these are all Old Testament prophecies, and I could list many others. The scribes and the Pharisees should have known all of these, and they should have made the connection and say, Ah, that points to Jesus Christ. I know where the authority comes from. It comes from God, because the Word of God talks about this man. But they refused to acknowledge Christ, not because of a lack of information, church, or a lack of evidence, but because of a rebellious heart, the problem of arrogance. And I'm afraid we have inherited this problem. Many people still reject him today because of a sinful heart, not because of unconvincing evidence. People who tell us, 
I'll believe God when I see Him. No, they will not. Because they see evidence of His creation all the time. The very air they breathe is evidence of the Creator. And they refuse to come to Him and acknowledge Him. In fact, in the book of Revelation, many people will see more evidence of the existence of God and the character of God and the attributes of God, and still they will rebel. They will pray to nature instead of praying to God. We studied that not too long ago. The Bible says God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's in James 4, verse 6. And the good news is that everyone who abandons that type of arrogance and comes to Christ will enter the kingdom of heaven. More on that in a few moments here. So the second area of the human heart we need to pay attention to is not only the problem of arrogance, now the pitfall of hypocrisy, verses 24 through 26, because this is what we see in these guys who approached Jesus Christ here. Now, his opponents claim to have divine authority. They claim to be the divine authority, the ones who have the keys to allow people into the kingdom of heaven. But the problem is they fear the mobs. So that is a contradiction of terms. How can you claim to be the authority for God? How can you claim to possess divine authority when you fear people? It makes no sense. So they are contradicting each other. They are showing hypocrisy at its worst here. Because they say, we are the authority, but we fear the people. So therefore, the people are the authority, not God. Everything I do is going to depend on whether or not I receive approval from people. But now they ask him a question. So well, let me ask you a question. How about John the Baptist? The guy that the Old Testament prophesied. Do you know the origin of his ministry? Because if you don't even know that, don't talk to me. If you don't even know that, I mean, that is, that is basic. But no, they fear the people. They follow the example of Herod, which we will remember according to Mark 6 verse 20. Feared John the Baptist because he was beloved by the people. In church, what we know here is that the fear of rejection paralyzes us. We're not immune to this. Unfortunately, even Christians relinquish principles at the altar of popular pressure and make shipwreck of their faith, to borrow a term that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 1.19. But we should know better because identification with Jesus and His value system invites the wrath of the world. Many people follow the example of these guys here from the Sanhedrin. And because of that, many Christians fumble with simple questions like this about the authority of Christ. And they are afraid of taking a stand and they manage their positions of truth according to their public relations objectives. That is so tragic. I can name popular Christian authors whose books you and I have read before, best-selling authors and musicians whose catchy tunes we hum from time to time, who once heralded truth clearly and courageously, but now tiptoe around the truth. They have determined that the social cost of identification with Christ is way too much. It soared to unbearable heights. I'm not willing to pay the price. Well, that's the pitfall of hypocrisy. When you once took a stand for truth, but now because of our ever-changing culture, I should say ever-decadent culture, we fail to take a stand. Politicians have mastered the art of managing questions. Have you noticed? But Jesus didn't have a political agenda here. He had a spiritual motive and he exposed the chief priests and elders to their own hypocrisy so that they would repent. You know, the purpose is not to embarrass them publicly, but Jesus wants them to repent, to see, to verbalize and articulate their folly so that they can repent and realize, okay, we're being foolish here. And therefore we need to repent. 
But average Christians receive the same onslaught from our culture, perhaps more than ever. But I need to tell you that the teenagers of our generation are the ones who bear the heavier burden than the rest of us. And the reason I say this is because social media and public schools compete with parents for their allegiance. Popular approval appeals to their sense of acceptance and self-preservation more significantly than for the rest of us because they are in the beginning stages of character formation. So to them I say, to the teenagers among us here, I say, resolve now to seek the approval of God rather than the approval of people and you won't fumble when the world throws traps at you and people assault your faith. And by the way, it will happen in college. So here's a third area of the human heart we must observe when we deal with the question of authority. I'm going to call this one in verse 27, the peril of ignorance. The only answer that these guys could give Jesus Christ is, I do not know. In other words, we are ignorant about these matters. So Jesus refused to answer the challenge from the Sanhedrin representatives. He says, I'm not going to fall into this. And the reason he did that is not because he was afraid. This is not managing the answer. This is not, well, whatever I say will be used against me kind of a thing. No, because he is the authority, the final authority on these things. He didn't have self-doubt. He didn't fear the people. No, he forced them to concede that they are not the final authority on spiritual matters. You don't even know that. How can you claim to be authorities and lead people to the truth when you don't even know a basic principle that is clearly in the Bible? If you can't even identify the source of the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, something clearly revealed in the Old Testament that you claim to know, Jesus is telling them, you are not going to be able to or willing to acknowledge Christ. So Jesus makes absolutely no attempt to win them over. And check this out, church. If you and I were attempting to start a movement, a worldwide movement, if you and I were in charge of initiating Christianity, we would not have elicited their hostility. We would have tried to earn their approval. We would have tried to earn their endorsement. Look, the religious leaders are approving of what we do. No, but that's not what Jesus is doing. He cares nothing about that. He makes no attempt to earn their, their sympathy even. In fact, this aggravates their hostility, which means, church, that Christianity needs no sponsorship. The church does not depend on any of that. We do not depend on government approval. We don't depend on any human institution. History proves that our Christian faith thrives under state persecution and even satanic oppression. Here's why. When you imprison true believers... Our circumstances turn out for the greater progress of the gospel, according to what Paul writes in Philippians 1, verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel because the whole Praetorian Guard has heard about my faith. And I'm paraphrasing that second part. So have joy, he says, because we consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance, according to James 1, verses 2 through 3. In church, we have this perspective because having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That is in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. 
So church, we operate solely by divine authority. Collectively as a church and individually as people. Our final authority is God himself. Sure, we have traditions and traditions serve a purpose. We all have traditions. For example, we have family traditions that you honor and that's okay. As long as we're not placing our faith in those church traditions. The head of the church is Christ and the head of the universe. He determines, check this out, he determines what is preached from this pulpit. He determines who preaches from this pulpit. He determines who sits in the pews and who serves in our ministry. He, he ordains the size, the demographics, the budget, the operations, and even the life cycle of local congregations because he retains complete authority over his own church. Now, truth softens people's hearts sometimes. The same truth that softens hearts also hardens them. Just like the warmth from the sun sometimes will harden clay, but at the same time, melt the wax. And what we see here is truth hardening hearts even more to the point that it aggravates people's ability to see. It's beyond me, church. How can someone behold the beauty of Jesus? Look him in the eye, the God-man, the creator and the redeemer of the universe, and deny his authority and question where he's from. This is willful ignorance, the type that refuses to acknowledge despite the evidence, because of a sinful heart. So I urge all of us here not to follow the example of these guys who had the problem of arrogance, the pitfall of hypocrisy, and the peril of ignorance. Well, let's continue here to understand the divine standard for admission into the kingdom of heaven. We looked at the question of authority because that's what the text shows us here. But secondly, I want us to see the question of access. Verses 28 through 32, the question of access. Now, instead of answering the challenge presented to him, Jesus tells his opponents three parables, okay? We're only going to look at the first one today. The one immediately after the exchange, he condemns the unbelief that excludes people from the kingdom of heaven, which means that you may not believe in organized religion or you may not like what you perceive to be Christianity. I hear this all the time, but you don't want to miss the question of access because that is crucial. If you miss the question of access into the kingdom of heaven, you're heading towards catastrophe, eternal catastrophe. God receives sinners into his family on the basis of faith, not on the mediation of any religious body. Because again, these guys are placing themselves in a position of mediators between God and people. They're saying, you need to come to us first before you come to Jesus Christ. Come to us and we'll tell you whether or not we sanctioned this ministry. Good deeds don't provide enough credit for people to get into heaven. We know that. And likewise, behavior modification or compliance with liturgical rules fall short because that is exactly what Jesus is condemning here. He's condemning the fact that people were focused on behavior modification. In other words, change your ways before you come to Christ. No, that's flip-flopped. You come to Christ first, He'll transform your heart. Behavior will follow. The language will follow. Everything else will follow. But if you leave the heart untouched, then you're missing the point. You're missing the question of access into the kingdom. That is exactly what Jesus is saying with this parable here, which he concludes by saying, I'll tell you what, the prostitutes and the tax collectors will make it to heaven before you do. And by that he means you're out, they're in. He's not saying they're first and you're second. He's saying you are out, but they are in. So no, God will not take everybody into heaven so long as they have good intentions. No, good intentions have nothing to do with access into the kingdom, but righteousness does. 
according to Christ. And this righteousness serves as your admissions ticket. At the moment, you see your sinfulness against the backdrop of God's holiness and grace and turn to Him in faith. He credits your overdrafted spiritual account with the righteousness of Christ. And those are all figures of speech that the New Testament uses to describe salvation. See, you and I are already born at war with God. In fact, we are conceived at war with God. At the moment we are conceived, we deserve hell, according to what Scripture says, because we fall short of the righteousness of God. We don't develop our sin nature through life. We're already born with it. And therefore, we already need the righteousness of God to be applied to us. Otherwise, we will not make it to the kingdom of heaven. That is the lesson from Jesus Christ. Paul explains. He says in Romans 4, verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So imagine that you have a trillion dollar plus debt against God that you can never repay. When you place your trust in Christ, your faith in him, he says, paid in full. I will take care of that debt for you. When that transaction takes place, you are born again. According to 1 Peter 1 verse 3, you pass from death to life, according to John 5 verse 24. You receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. You are rescued from the domain of darkness, having been in Adam first, and you are now transferred to the kingdom of light and immediately placed in Christ. These are all things that happen when we come to Jesus Christ in faith. In church, none of this happens by religious affiliation or denomination affiliation or I'm part of the group, therefore this group is going to heaven, I'm, I'm, I better jump on the train. That's not how it works. It's individual. It's, it's by grace through faith only. Ephesians 2 verse 8. According to the lesson that this short parable teaches us, by divine grace, prostitutes and tax collectors can receive forgiveness in eternal life. According to Jesus in this parable, their transformed lives serves then as testimonies that the scribes and the chief priests and the elders of Israel failed to see. But along with prostitutes and tax collectors, redeemed serial killers, saved drug dealers, converted child molesters will make it to the kingdom of heaven by grace through faith if they come to faith in Christ. Remember that such were some of you of 1 Corinthians 1 verse 6. And tragically, some pastors, preachers, priests, imams, bishops, archbishops, rectors, cardinals, and popes will be left out of the kingdom unless they are born again and they're not placing their trust in their system or their religious body or their own perceived goodness or works, but on, on Jesus Christ alone. But take a look at the last verse here. And we'll finish with this. Now imagine Matthew's reaction when he heard the sweet words of his Savior mentioning the fact that former tax collectors are going to be in the kingdom. Because remember, Matthew was a tax collector. There's nothing wrong with the profession. The problem is he was a scammer. Like most of these guys who had that profession, let me just tell you this. They would buy a franchise from Rome for a certain amount of money. And they would say, well, whatever you collect above this is yours to keep. Um, so that, that's what, how they would scam people. And Matthew's papyrus here, when he's writing this, must have soaked with tears of gratitude when he remembered the sweet voice of his Savior, assure him that former scammers like him could make it to the kingdom of heaven. In church, we likewise 
should soak our Bibles with our tears of joy and gratitude every time we remember our past and we remember that God saved a wretch like us. Now, you may not have been a prostitute. You may not have been a tax collector. You may have been a pretty good citizen. But maybe you had bitterness in your heart and resentment and arrogance and thinking that you can make it to the kingdom of heaven on your own. But when you look at the grace of God who saved you, who saved me, how can you keep a dry eye? Let your life provide a visual testimony, even today, like those tax collectors and prostitutes, that Jesus is still in the business of saving people, receiving them into his kingdom, and changing their lives. So church, I'll go back to the question from the beginning. What is the divine standard for admission into the kingdom of heaven? Is it church affiliation? Is it baptism? No, baptism doesn't save, church affiliation doesn't. It's not part of the standard for admission into the kingdom of heaven. By grace, through faith, are we saved. And not of yourselves, the Bible says. That is the gift from God. And at the moment we exercise that saving faith, He admits us into the kingdom of heaven on the merit of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are a visual testimony to the whole world that Jesus Christ has the authority to save wretched sinners like us. And He can save you too. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people, just like you, to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.